I'm going to invite you to turn with me in uh, your Bible to James chapter 4, beginning in verse uh, number 1. And with that in mind, I just want to jump right in. So let's go. James chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives, shows favor to the humble. And we'll just stop there. We're going to look at a couple more verses in just a, a few minutes. If you're a guest with us, we've been uh, journeying through the letter of James in the New Testament, James, Jesus' half-brother, and just looking at and finding life application for our lives. Kind of the whole point, the focus of what James is writing is the, the fact that our faith is not meant to be a little compartment of our lives, but rather it's meant to impact and to shape everything of who we are. And, and many times as we jump into a passage, much like we're looking at this morning, I'll try to find three or four different things that send you out with application points to take and to walk through, but I'd rather do something a bit different this morning, and that is just to highlight a few words that have stood out in some of these verses to look at and, and really, I believe, find application in our lives when we look at it. And so look back with me in James uh, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Uh, notice the question. He says, James says, what causes the fights and the quarrels among you? I think most everyone here listening, if I were to ask you to recount or to make a list of perhaps your most recent struggles, if you were to think about your most recent struggles with an individual or even your most recent struggles personally in your life, if I were to make you a, ask you to make a list, you would immediately begin a list of different names of individuals that you've had a struggle with or individuals you've had a challenge with, uh, individuals who have perhaps you're at odds with. When it came to struggles, you might begin to make a list of personal struggles, struggles that others may know about, struggles that no one knows about, struggles that happen in your mind, struggles that happen in your desires. And you begin to have those lists of struggles. And the next thing I were to do is to ask you to go back to those two lists that you've made, your struggles and the individuals that you've had struggles with, and to, beside those lists, to begin to write the cause of those troubles, the cause of those struggles that you're facing the many next to the names would begin to write the reason that there was a struggle with that person. It might mean, well, they just didn't listen. Um, they talk too much. They, they get me angry. They know how to push my buttons. They know this. They, and with this, this list of things, or they've wronged me for the last time, and this list of all of the things that we identify as being the cause of why those relationships are strained, or on the list where we have this, the personal struggles, you're beside it, the cause, you might write, well, um, was, was unaccountable with my time, uh, was careless in my thought life, uh, allowed myself to go too far, or the list could be endless of all of the causes that you put next to those issues and the, the lists that are there. And most all of us, when we put, make those lists of individuals and the list of struggles in our lives, that most of us would probably begin to make a list beside it of the symptoms that were the issue. The, the symptoms of, of what happened. But notice what James asks. James doesn't ask for the symptoms of the issue. The symptoms of the issue in the relationship or the symptoms of the issue in your struggle. James clearly asks, what's the cause? Verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? 
James is not focused on the symptoms. He's focused on the source. He's focused on the, the cause of the issue. And he says, what is the cause of your struggle? What is the cause of your conflict? See, many times in our lives, we go through our everydays, whether it be in relationships or in struggles, and most often, you and I, we focus on dealing with symptoms. We focus on trying to fix the symptoms rather than dealing with the source or the cause of the issue. And if I were to stand before you today, and I'm standing here, and I'm wearing a, a shirt with some white in it, and, and I begin to have a very large amount of blood you see coming down my arm and soaking the shirt and dripping even onto the floor, and, and it becomes obvious that I've got a very severe, very significant injury to my arm, and perhaps I'm not even using it. I'm just letting it hang limp. And as I'm preaching, and, and I just continue to, to bleed, and you see the, the blood is building there, and, and immediately our emergency response team, we have just, we're just blessed with a number of medical professionals who respond to an emergency when individuals are in need, is while I'm preaching, if they were to come, and if Dr. Pete were to come, and, and he were to be saying, Steve, I need, I need to see you. You've got a serious issue. And this team were to gather around me, and I were to say, well, you know, I know I have an issue, but, but I have a Band-Aid. I've bought a, brought a Band-Aid, so all is well. And I were to even take this little Band-Aid out of, the, the, um, out of the, the sleeve, and I were to take it, and all the while I'm dripping and making a bigger mess, and it's very obvious that I'm beginning to drift towards losing consciousness because of the amount of blood that I'm losing, and I would say, hey, it's all okay because I've got this Band-Aid, and, and uh, the cor- the, you see I'm soaking up here, and I were to put it right here, look, I've got it, I fixed it. You would, look at, you would look at me, and each person would look at me, and the emergency response team would look at me with that little Band-Aid, and you would think, well, you're not dealing with the source. You're not dealing with the issue. You're just merely dealing with trying to stop just one of the, the symptoms of what's happening. And many times in our lives, when we go through our lives, we, we try to deal with issues in relationships, and we try to deal with the personal struggles that we have. We try to deal with it by using a Band-Aid to address the cause. We try to use a Band-Aid on the issue, on the, on the symptoms, rather than getting to the source. And James gives some of the symptoms that we often focus in on, some of the symptoms that get our attention, much like the, if I had a massive amount of blood, that would immediately catch your attention. And James says oftentimes the symptoms that we focus on, listen to some of the symptoms that he says in verse 2. He says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, uh, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And then verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you've asked with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. A few of the things that James lists off. First, he says in verse 2, he says, you're desi- you desire, but you don't have. The word that he uses for desire in, in some translations, and a more accurate translation would say, your lusts, your longings. When you and I hear the word lust, and, and you might hear that word, whether it's reading in Scripture and elsewhere, many times in our minds, we take that word and we attach it immediately to uh, some of the, the more severe sexual sins or sexual temptations that happen. And while there is application to that, um, really the word lust means any type of longing or desire that is overwhelming. Any type of desire, so, so it, could, it might be a lust or a longing for other things, might be, I mean, a, a lust or a desire for individuals. It might mean any number of things that you can put into it. Jesus, in fact, talked about the overmastering desire of anything. And in Luke chapter 8, he, uses, he tells a parable of a sower, a parable of a farmer who goes out and he takes seed and he talk, uses the seed as a, as a picture of the gospel. 
And he, and he says, the farmer goes out and he takes the seed and he begins to throw it. And some lands on the, on, on the rocky path, some lands in the good soil, some lands among thorns. And the one that lands among thorns, he says that it grows up for a little while, but the thorns choke it back from ever becoming fruitful or effective. And Jesus goes on to say, he says, that, that uses that picture, he says that the cares and the longings and the lusts for things in this life choke out our spiritual effectiveness. doesn't say that it snuffs out the life, but rather they, they live a life, and he's talking about a follower of Jesus, a Christian. They live a life so consumed with chasing other things, with a longing and desire for other things, that it ultimately robs them of any true effectiveness in their faith in Christ. So it really can be anything. And James says some of the symptoms involve desire, involves the lust of the longings, the driving consumer des- consuming desire for more, that there's always this one more time or there's always this is the last time that we continue to lead ourselves on with. In verse 2, he says, you desire but you don't have, so you kill. You covet. The word covet or envy means a jealousy of others. Specifically, it describes a desire that's aroused by seeing what others have and not just seeing what others have but wishing it was you. Wishing it was, well, and then oftentimes it might sound like this, well, man, they always get the break. They always get the good cars. They always get the bigger house. They're, they always have the better family. Why couldn't it just be me? Just what, why do they always get the race? Any number of phrases that would put into that is an identifier of that coveting or that jealousness, jealous, jealousy of others. Uh, another thing he points out is quarreling. Verse 2, he says that uh, you get, so you quarrel and you fight. He says you quarrel. It speaks of arguments and disagreements and fractured relationships. That there's a, there's a constant friction in relationships, that it's standing relationships that are broken or frayed or damaged, and there's really no end or healing in sight. Uh, he goes on and he says, uh, not only just quarreling, and he says, and you fight. Fights or wars, this can mean global or national, but really it speaks of the physical opposition that can flow out of quarreling, the ongoing quarreling, the developing to the point that there really is, is a great enmity or distancing in the relationship. Verse 3, he highlights it. He says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. Selfish motives, like not just wanting stuff, but wanting stuff, wanting God's blessings and provision for ourselves. That the focus is that when God blesses us, I want it just for me. I want him to bless me and my family and, and take care of my needs and not focusing anywhere else. And James says that these are some of the symptoms that we focus on. He says when we focus on these, they're symptoms. They're not the cause. They're not the source of the issue. And as long as we focus on symptoms, we'll never really deal with the issue. I think a real-life example that, that helps drive this home or understand this is if you're familiar with the, the Old Testament story of King David. I think most are probably familiar with some of the details. Um, I've shared before that there was a time we had gone with some of our kids back when they were in, in grade school and had gone with our kids to a picnic at the park at, with their school and struck up a conversation with one of the dads there and somewhere in the conversation he found that I was a pastor and what I found is that uh, when I mentioned that, that individuals will immediately try to reach back to the last time they were at church, the last Bible story they knew, something. And so he immediately uh, begins to reach back and he reaches back to something about King David and, and so I said, oh yeah, King David and I was actually t- teaching about him that Sunday and I said, uh, I'm talking about King David. He said, isn't he that guy who, um, who you know, they usually they associate King David with, with Goliath but said, he said, isn't isn't he the guy who killed his general and slept with his wife? And I'm like, yeah, that's him. Um, that just his mind went immediately to that. And if you're familiar with King David, you know those probably those two extremes in the story of David. But one of the things that happened in David's life that helps highlight dealing with the symptoms versus dealing with the cause or the source 
is King David did have a time where he was incredibly successful, and he began to neglect some of the main duties that he had. And so in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the story starts, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 says, in a time when kings go off to war, David stayed back in the palace. And as he stays back in the palace, he begins to linger on his rooftop and begins to look out and look around. And the story goes, if you know it, a woman on another rooftop catches his eye. She doesn't just catch his eye, she's, she's bathing. And he continues to watch her, and then he sends a servant over to get her. Now, the thing about this, this woman, and it comes out later in the story that this woman is, Uriah, uh, is Uriah's wife. Uriah, if you look, is one of David's close friends. Uriah is one of David's mighty men, is one of his close soldiers. So David would have known who this was. This woman comes, and he, he invites her into his, his, uh, his palace. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. He sends her back. Um, and when he finds out that she's pregnant, he tries to cover up the issue. He tries to begin to deal with the symptoms. Well, she's pregnant. We messed up. How do we fix this? So he sends for Uriah, the general, to come from the battle lines and to go and to be with his wife. That doesn't work. So finally, he stages an accident on the battlefield that leads to Uriah being killed. And so in David's eyes, he's taking care of the issue. But in reality, he's only taking care of the symptoms. He's only dealing with the issue. Look at how in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, so it begins when the times when kings go off to war and the time when David should have been doing what he, should have been, what he was supposed to be doing, and then you see all of this negligence in between and him trying to solve it on his own. Look at how that whole chapter ends. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. After the time of mourning was over, David had her, had Bathsheba brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Listen to this. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. See, David took care of all the symptoms that he possibly could. He addressed every symptom that surfaced. He addressed, he addressed the fact, well, she's pregnant. How can I solve that? When that, his first solution didn't work, he went to another solution. And finally, when, it, when, that, when that one worked, he then moved on to bring her into his house and make him his wife. Her, his wife. He fixed all the symptoms that he possibly could. But if you look at the, the story, in the end, God always sees the source. He always sees the cause, and it says the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It was just, it's like almost like a dark cloud hanging over the story, realizing there's still more to come because the source has not been dealt with. God eventually deals with the source with David, and it takes a little bit for him to really clue in, and you begin to see in the very next chapter, God uses the prophet Nathan and sends him to David to confront him. And through a number of things, David finally comes to a place where he realizes the severity of his sin and he comes to a place of repentance. But James gives us a second question in, in James chapter 4, verse 1, to consider that really reminds us of the source of the issue. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He says the, the, the source of the issue is the, your evil desires that are at war or a conflict within you. The real issue is never the other person. The real issue is not that the other person doesn't see things the way you see them. The, the real issue is not that the other person doesn't listen the way you want them to listen. The real issue is not the, the unaccountable time online or all of the different things that we'll point to as the source. James says the real source is the evil desire within, or it's not the temptation we're facing, but it's our, it's our desires within that we're constantly at war with. That every single struggle you face in life and every single struggle that you, you deal with comes from your own selfish desire. Listen to how Paul writes this in, uh, in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse number 16. He says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, or live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the, to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. What he goes on to say is that, the, that there's this un- inward struggle inside of you. One of the ways that I've often said it over the years is it's a reminder that you're a walking civil war. That there's a walking struggle that continually happens inside of you. Uh, one of the things that I'll often do is I'll read in my own devotional life as well as in studies, I'll look at a number of different translations and I'll look at the way different translations uh, will, will share something. And recently, just for my own devotional life, I've been spending some time in the New Living Translation. Listen to how the New Living Translation says the same passage in Galatians 5. So, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us the desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. As I've said, you're a walking civil war. That there's this continual conflict between what the Holy Spirit desires in your life and what your natural self and your natural desires long for. Different symptoms will surface in your life and throughout different avenues of your lives. And while those symptoms will look different depending on the temptation, the person, or the relationship, the root issue is always the ongoing struggle inside of you. Uh, One way that I used to picture this for students in youth ministry when I worked with teens is I used to tell them that you need to picture that inside of you, inside your life, inside your heart, inside your soul... It's like you almost have two wild animals, two wild dogs living inside of you. And depending on which one you feed is going to decide which one gets the upper hand and wins that conflict and that struggle inside of you. If you feed the one that, that appeals to your natural self, your natural desires, what, what you want to do, then that's the one that you're going to see having the greatest influence over your life. But if you begin to feed the one that wants to lead you into a, a path of a, a lifestyle that honors God, if you want to lead, be led in a life that reflects the Holy Spirit living inside of you, then make choices that are consistent with his nature, and you'll begin to see his influence shaped in your life. If you continually recognize and make choices that align with this God's Spirit in you, his influence and leading in your life will become greater. His leading and influence in your life will become greater. So you want to be more responsive to the Holy Spirit? then find all the little ways in your day that you can make the best choice to honor him and say no to self in any way possible. John Owen, uh, an English Puritan writer, says that we need to look for ways daily to wound our sinful nature. Look for ways daily to tell yourself no. Look for ways daily to deny the self, to deny the self-life and the self-desires from any step of getting the upper hand. And while this matter, when it comes to matters of sin issue, it's not just limited to matters of sin issue. That anytime there's the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life, be willing to take that step and say yes. And, I, and the return on that is that our hearts grow in a greater awareness and understanding of how he leads. As, as a follower of Jesus... If we want to live and grow and and living a life that's influenced and led by the Holy Spirit, then we must learn to say yes to his leading in in all areas of our lives. And while it stands out on on massive sin issues, it might stand out on dealing with temptation or overcoming struggles of, of recognizing what's right and what's wrong, and it can be quite black and white. There are other times in life it's just simply recognizing a little nudging and leading that he wants to to guide you in. Uh, this past Thursday, when I left the office, we had one of our cars. Uh, one of our vehicles just needed just some concerns with, over some transmission issues, so we're dropping it off at a shop to be looked at. 
And my daughter, Nicole, had followed me there and was sitting in the car, and I went in to, to, to talk at the desk with the individual. And now I had finished the day. Um, we're heading home, and then we were going to be out that night for another event. So it's kind of just in a rush, hurry to get home, ready to be done. And as I go into the, to the counter, and I, and I stand there, and the person on the other side is just doing what, if you've been to an auto shop of any sort, usually they're multitasking on a few number of things. Um, and just multitasking on handling a few things, and then I acknowledge because I'd called, and he had an appointment, and he just begins to talk. And the best way I can describe it is while I'm standing there uh, with this individual just right in front of me, and I just begin to um, interact with him about the car, I could I just felt like almost like a, I don't know how best to describe it, but like a gentle nudging of the Holy Spirit just pressing on my heart, just pressing, and, and, and really the prompting was to push forward in, in further conversation, not just keep it a, a business transaction. Now, in that second, my, I was like, I'm tired. I'm just, and I'm not even thinking this to God. I'm just thinking, I'm kind of complaining to myself, I'm tired. I want to get home, have all these different things to do. And just thinking, it's easy to dismiss it so fast. But that, that pressing wouldn't stop. And so after we finished the transaction part, and there were some things very specific that God had, I felt God had put on my heart, very personal about his life that, that was just pressing there. So I just, I engaged him in, in the conversation, and I asked him a very personal question. And when I asked him a very personal question, it opened up a whole avenue to his life that he hadn't shared, and he gave me the opportunity to pray with him. Um, he was he's not currently serving Christ. But I look at that, and, and as I walked out, I realized it's a great reminder that of how simple the Holy Spirit wants to lead our lives and influence our lives, and how simple it is for us to say no and to completely miss it. And the more we take those promptings and we dismiss them, whether it comes to dealing with specific sin issues or dealing with how God wants to use and empower you in our community and in people around you, is that the more we, we dismiss those promptings, the quieter and quieter they'll become to the point that we don't even recognize when they're happening. But if we want to, if we want to grow in following the Holy Spirit's leading and his empowering in our lives, then when those little promptings come, follow his lead and allow him to begin to fill it and allow him to work. And, and it's going to lead into conversations that, that he'll fill and he'll lead and he'll guide you in. And it's also going to lead in greater awareness to how he's stopping and putting the brakes on your life when those struggles surface that ultimately want to get to the, some, highlight some of the causes and the issues in your heart. But it, it comes to recognizing and following his influence and his lead in our lives. And I really believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, if we want to live and grow in living a life that is influenced and led and formed by the Holy Spirit, then not only do we need to regularly assess and examine how are, how are we saying yes to how the Holy Spirit's leading us? Are we allowing him to lead us away from a, a life that, that is built around myself and a life that really seeks for and honors his presence in all things? But then I think the second thing that we need to regularly take assessment of is we need to, to regularly assess ways that the world, our culture, its values, and its mindset tries to creep in. Because that will immediately undermine how the Holy Spirit wants to work and lead and influence in our lives. So we need to regularly take an assessment of how the world would creep in and its mindset. Uh, my wife and I, I think most of you know this by now, but we have, we have eight kids. Uh, our two oldest, they're all teenagers between the ages of 16 and 24. And our two oldest are now, over the course of the past year and a half, are married and out of the house. Um, so we still have six teenagers living at home. And um, six teenagers living at home can eat a lot. Uh, there are times I'll tell some of my kids, I'll just tell them, hey, it's, it's time to be done with third breakfasts, okay? Um, it's just time to be done with third breakfasts. 
And, you know, I was, I was just thinking kind of jokingly over this, and this morning thinking about, um, you, you know, if you're a farmer here, that, that, or I remember hearing as a farmer that when a, when a, a swarm of locusts can uh, descend on a field, that they can do a massive amount of damage. You think that's a lot of damage, you should unleash six teenagers on a pantry of food. I mean, just the damage they can do. And so my wife and I have reached a point where we, we've just, we order more food in bulk. We shop from Sam's. We do things as best as we can to make money, just all of it. And so we'll shop in bulk uh, at Sam's. And so to be able to, to keep it so it's not all like, you know, free for all and everything, and then within a week you're out of it all again, we take some of it and we, we store it in shelves in the basement. And so we have the shelving in the basement. And so about once a month, we'll go and we'll just, you know, take inventory. What's there? What do we need? Uh, you know, what, are we, what do we have a buildup of? What are we lacking? Now, if we were to just every month go and repeat the exact same order, month after month after month after month after month, and then six months later, we're to go into the basement and, and look at the food, we would find that there are certain things that we're absolutely out of, certain things that we're lacking, and other things that we've built up a great supply on. Um, just by way of the ebb and flow of our family and the life and things. And so often when I look at that picture and I think of that analogy of just that, that taking time to assess and take inventory of what we need, what we need more of, what we need less of, but I think that there's a great application in our lives, in your life and in my life, specifically when it comes to the way that our world functions, the way that the world's values continually try to press in on your life, the way that the Holy Spirit wants to lead and shape your life, is that I believe for a follower of Jesus that we should consistently, really on a daily basis, take inventory of what's happening in our hearts and what's happening in our minds and what's happening in our lives. That we should daily take inventory of are there values that the world tells me and gives me, value systems and value sets the world gives me that are, when I take and look at it, it's not consistent with what being a follower of Jesus Christ looks like? Are there ways that the Holy Spirit wants to lead me in thinking and living that when I look at it, I realize that I'm not growing in those areas, and so I need to make sure that I focus in on these areas and grow in these areas, that there's a consistent inventory taking place in our life of what, what is the Holy Spirit doing? How is he leading? What's he wanting to do? And what are the ways that the world is trying to, to ebb away at the things that the Holy Spirit is leading in? I think if you're a journal, I think journaling or blogging or something is a great way to, to continually take assessment. From time to time, I'll pull out my journal and I'll, and I'll look at the themes that God's been speaking to me and challenging, challenging me on and stretching me in areas that, that I see how the Holy Spirit wants to work and lead and shape my life. But I want you to see what James says about the world's influence and its values when it comes to the choices we make between following the self-life and following the a spirit-led life and his desire for our life. Look in James uh, chapter 4, once again, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He says, what James says is that alignment and our influence with the world's ways and values equals friendship with the world and being an enemy of God or opposition towards God. And James uses a word that, that it's very easy to just maybe take it as figurative and more of, a, of just a picture and to move it along. But he says in, in James 4, 4, he says, you adulterous people. To better understand, understand what James is talking about when he calls these New Testament believers Adulterous, you need to have a little bit of an understanding of Old Testament history. 
In the Old Testament, just kind of a Cliff Notes version, in the Old Testament, God picked one individual, Adam, or he picked one individual, Abraham, that he wanted to, to bring his blessing into the world. And so through Adam, they want to bring the Messiah into the world. So through, through Abraham, they led to a nation, and that, that blessing that God had with Abraham went to the nation of Israel. And so the nation of Israel was identified and picked as being kind of God's nation, God's, God's chosen people, and they became the one that, the nation that the Messiah would come through. And God had this, this love relationship with this nation and this, this desire to see them flourish and this desire to see his blessing and favor lived out through their life. So he began to describe his relationship through his prophets, his relationship with the nation of Israel. He began to describe it in terms of a marriage. And he began to use phrases in a marriage to describe this ongoing relationship that he has, had with them. And so when the nation began to turn away from God and began to adapt the values and the cultures of the worlds around them, if they, they lived among a nation that was near them, they would adopt the ways that they would worship their gods, the, way that, the ways, the different forms and practices of worship and rituals. And so what... What the prophets began to, to say on behalf of God about the nation of Israel is he would describe it as being as that they were committing adultery, that they were committing spiritual adultery because they were turning away from God, the one who loved them and cared for them as a husband and wife type relationship. Now, there were times that it wasn't actual adultery, but it was, mere, it was adopting the, the ways and the cultures around them. And then there were times that it involved sexual practice and sexual activity that was not intended to be a part of their lives. But the point is that God continued to identify to them his desire for a relationship. And it speaks to the value and the priority that God places on our relationship with him. He considers it in the highest regard that anything, that when we introduce anything into it that can strain it, he views it as spiritual adultery. He desires such a union with you and me in our lives and in our relationship with him and his influence in our lives. He desires such a union and such a bond that we choose to guard it the same way one would or should guard their marital relationship. That he wants that type of relationship with you and with me. And when James calls these individuals, these believers, adulterous people, um, what he's saying is you're allowing the world's ways, the world's values, and the world's gods to become your own. You're allowing it to steal your heart away from him. That's what James is identifying. Now, I would imagine that if I were to come into your homes, if you were to invite me over for dinner uh, or just to be at your place or to stop by, I would imagine that when I walked into your house, I highly doubt I would find statues or idols or gold, uh, idols of gold or stone or wood around your home. But can the same be said of our hearts? See, in our hearts, our culture, the gods of our culture don't always come carved in stone. Instead, they come in the form of sports, in the form of time, in the form of money, in the form of busyness, in the form of, of electronics, in the form of entertainment. The things that we prioritize, the things that we value, the, the things that we place value on that we allow to consume our time reveal the gods that are in our hearts. Our culture offers us gods. Do we choose to adapt to them or do we choose to reject them and stay true to the one true God? One of the assignments that God gave the nation of Israel when it came to helping from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, to stay true in their relationship with him, one of the assignments that he gave the nation of Israel uh, was to model for their children and the next generations the priority of their relationship with God. So the question that I would ask you is, what do we model to our kids as being our priority and our God? What do we model to our families? What do we model? What consumes our time? What gathers our attention? What holds our heart? The places where your hearts are right now would reveal a great indicator. 
When we allow our hearts to wander and to stray and be camped on other things or settled on other things or settled on other activities, those are the signals that perhaps there's a God that has taken up residence in our heart that is rivaling the ones that we've been made for, that he desires and longs for relationship with us. And Revelation, the very last book in, in the New Testament, God uses the Apostle John, and he begins to speak kind of in a, in a, in a revelation-type sense and speaking final things and end things uh, into just for Scripture and for us to keep in front of us. And many speak to things to come. Many speak to things happening now. But in Revelation 2, he begins to lay out a number of, of warnings to churches, physical churches at the time. And so physical warnings to these real churches, real people, but they carry warnings for us for today and a reminder that we can take and learn from and to the church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus was guilty of spiritual adultery. And in Revelation 2, verse 4, listen to what he says. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and will remove your lampstand from its place. But look at verse 4 again. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. He says, you've forsaken the love. Many times this passage will be misquoted and I'll hear individuals say, well, you've lost your first love. But John didn't write, you've lost your first love. He says, you've forsaken. The word forsaken means left or abandoned or walked away from. It's one thing to lose something. It's completely another thing to abandon something. One uh, writer that I was, one author, he said it this way. He said, it's mu much easier to admit that we lost something to admit that we abandoned or left something implies a much greater personal responsibility. Yet that's what James says that we do in our choices that put self and create a bond and a friendship and a familiarity with the world's ways, with the world's values, and the world's system. And as dire as all of that sounds from what James lays out, he lays out the solution. And the solution always begins with getting God in the middle of it. Look in James chapter 4, verse 5. Listen to how he says this. Are you, do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? That you can never want God more than he wants you. That he is always passionate to have you back. That there is never a place or a point that you can feel and, and say, think that, that you want him more if only he would respond to your pleas or respond to your heart cries. But what the passage says here in God's word repeatedly tells us again and again, you can never want him more than he wants you that he always is passionate and desiring relationship with you and with me. It says, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes or resists or stands opposite of the proud, but shows favor or grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, or your, your dual life. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The solution always begins by coming back to God on his terms. It says that he longs for us, he desires us. And in verse seven where it says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That word submit, what he, what he speaks to submit, it literally means to come up under, to come up under God's way, to come up under his purpose, to come up under his design, to come up under his love, to come up come up under his covering in your life. It says, as we submit ourselves to him and resist the devil, resist the influence, it says he will flee. And then in verse eight, he says, he says this, come near to God and he will come near to you. To come near, to draw near to him, 
to draw close to him. Reading this out of the New Living Translation, let me read this entire passage to you. It says, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. What James describes is a journey of repentance, a journey of coming back to God and turning our backs on the world, of coming to a place of of confessing and opening our hearts to him. And in verse eight specifically, when he says this, he says, come near to God and he will come near to you. This is written to believers, written to individuals who are followers of Jesus. And yet James identifies that believers can live at different distances in their relationship with God. You might think, what does that look like? What does that look like for different believers, people to be believers committed to following Jesus, but to live at different distances in their relationship and in their walk with him? And I believe it looks like this. The Holy Spirit reveals and, and prompts things in our hearts even now, areas of compromise that the Holy Spirit, that you're sensing that nudging that I talked about earlier, you're sensing that pressing on your heart, something that is standing out, something the Holy Spirit in a sense shines a spotlight on. And as he highlights that and and he reveals it in our life, that we can dismiss it by saying and sit back and either excuse it or we can sit back and say, well, I'll just deal with that later. It's not that bad. That's an example of choosing to stay at the distance. Whereas when we choose to respond and draw close to him, we say, God, I don't don't understand why this is being highlighted, but I want to trust you and I want to surrender to you. And I want to follow your leading. And I realize that as I say yes to you, you'll continue to open my heart, my eyes, and my understanding to know you more. And as we continually respond with promptness and responding to what he's revealing and what he wants to work in our hearts, areas that he wants to purify and change, verse 6 says this. It says, he gives us more grace. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to those who respond to him. And friends, we can spend our lives addressing symptoms or we can yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit and allow him to deal with the source. And he can do more work in a few seconds than we can do in a lifetime as we keep our hearts and our lives surrendered and open to him.